It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In schools, workplaces, courtrooms, and public parks across America, people are arguing about what free speech means in the age of the internet. What are the rules, and are they the same in every context? What are the consequences when we take action against hate speech? And what are the consequences of not taking action? When we talk about these things in even-handed terms, what we do is ignore the actual history of these groups who are marginalized. A really important instrument that we have here is prosecuting actual violence. Writer Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker and Professor Nadine Strassen, the former president of the ACLU, passionately debate these issues on stage at the 2022 Aspen Ideas Festival. They agree on the importance of free speech, as well as equality, dignity, and civil rights, but disagree on plenty of other things. Another respectful disagreement again. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am astounded by the amount of respect that you have. <laughs> and, and I want to say I have equal measure. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The conversation was moderated by New York Times columnist David Brooks and was held on June 29th. Here's Brooks. So we're going to start with a simple question for Nadine. Um, free speech, how big a problem are we facing? Uh, well, David, I'm fond of quoting Charles Dickens' famous opening to A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. In terms of legal protection for free speech, it's a pretty good time. Uh, for all of the other incursions on civil liberties and constitutional rights that this Supreme Court has been making, it has been very staunch all across the ideological spectrum in defending free speech, uh, which is not to say that we don't have a lot of government violations of free speech, including attempts to crack down on protesters, to stifle public school curricula, but there is a First Amendment remedy for those problems. Where the worst of times comes in is in what I call a free speech culture. Uh, we have, to the contrary, what many people call cancel culture, which is not necessarily a completely bad thing, right? Some self-censorship is to be applauded. The title of my book talks about resisting hate speech with more speech, counter speech. But the real problem we have is constant surveys that show that people all across the ideological spectrum of all racial and other demographic groups are radically self-censoring about the most important topics, including race and gender. And that is really uh, catastrophic in terms of not only individual liberty, but also democratic discourse. Jelani, okay. your view on this? Um, well, first of all, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, and I think I can understand both of those perspectives about the best of times and worst of times. Uh, but you know, being frank, the thing that jumps to my mind immediately is this uh, unchecked march of state legislatures uh, to ban books, to fire teachers, which we're seeing happen, um, specifically in a kind of regressive inversion of the logic of Brown versus Board of Education in order to Brown, the logic of Brown versus Board of Education was that the ideology of segregation was psychologically damaging to black children. 
And that was why Brown, why segregation was struck down. And we've seen that inverted now to say that teaching white children about segregation is psychologically damaging to them and therefore you can't do that. Uh, and I think that is a crucial concern. The other thing I think is more complicated because when we talk about censorship, uh, I don't, I've, I've, to the best of my ability, I avoid the term cancel culture. Uh, and the reason for that is that I think it has been the kind of the best tool for fairly reactionary ideas uh, to gain uh, a mainstream acceptance. And what I mean by that uh, is this. We, with good reason, oppose the state censorship, censorship, censorship by the state uh, of our publications, of our artistic expressions, et cetera. And typically, at least in legal terms, uh, and in kind of intellectual and social terms, we think that our, uh, those expressions should be determined by community standards, by what communities feel are, ex are acceptable. But when those communities say, we think that this is not acceptable, they're then accused of cancel culture, and there's no way of checking these ideas in the first place. And so it becomes a kind of, um, a kind of mutually exclusive circumstance where you can never actually say. The best example of this, I think, most recent that I saw was Bill Maher, uh, who was defending Dave Weigel, who tweeted uh, a joke which I considered to be highly inflammatory for someone who was a journalist at a premier outlet. I won't repeat the joke, but it ridiculed uh, people who are bisexual and people who are bipolar and women. And Bill Maher on his show went on to a long tirade about how this should never have happened. These are people who are just ready to be offended, et cetera. And I was like, so are we now saying that we're upset when a, a employer says, we don't want you to make fun of mental illness? Like that's cancel culture? May, may I respond to both of those points? Those are really good points, and, and, and this is a very complex area. Uh, on the first point, um, the fact that um, uh, the, 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 the notion that being uncomfortable or being sub uh, subjected to divisive speech is the rationale for this host of state laws that uh, outlaw teaching of essential subjects, including the history of racism and discrimination in this country. Where did those concepts come from? The notion that we should be shielded, that our young people uh, in educational institutions should be shielded from expression that makes them uncomfortable or that is divisive. Those are concepts that we started to hear on university campuses from progressive students who wanted to be shielded from conservative ideas that made them uncomfortable or conservative speakers that they found to be divisive. And this brings me back to my central point and much more importantly, uh, the central point of the First Amendment and free speech more generally. And that is that we have to be staunchly viewpoint neutral in our defense of these principles. That if we allow speech to be suppressed solely because it makes somebody uncomfortable uh, or creates division, 
that is something that can be used to censor ideas that we cherish as well as ideas that we loathe. I could not agree more with Jelani that we cannot use the term cancel culture to suppress what is itself an essential exercise of free speech, namely criticizing ideas that we disagree with. That's what free speech proponents classically juxtapose with censorship. We say, don't censor the idea that you don't like. Speak back to it, critique it, refute it, devastate it. Uh, but where it goes too far is where, as is widely reported to be the case, people are so afraid, not only of having their ideas critiqued, but having their livelihoods decimated, of having their friendship ne uh, networks decimated, uh, of being shunned and shamed and humiliated in public, that they refrain from expressing even good faith ideas about sensitive subjects. So we've got a, a, a few different sectors we're talking about here. There's the classroom sector, or the, what we'll call the college sector, which is what Nadine emphasized, the culture of self-censorship. There's what Jelani talked about, the banning of books in the curriculum sector, which is more, say, at the high school level. And then the Washington Post is a good case study of a workplace. And they're slightly different. Sure. So, and so I'd like to start with the, the college sector, the culture of self-censorship. And it's very hard, it's always been hard in all these cases for me to know if it's a pervasive problem or if people are blowing up a few anecdotes. And my own insight, I teach at Yale, and I was telling Nadine, I just, it's my 20th year, and I uh, taught a course, two courses through the year, and at the end of the year, it occurred to me, at no point in the year did a single student disagree with another. And that gave me the impression that people are really holding back because they're afraid of being jumped on or judged or whatever. So is that your impression? Or else or, they're intellectually homogenous, yeah. which could yeah. also be a problem. Or, or do you think, I'm, exa I'm exaggerating. No, I mean, I think that one, there's a dynamic of people taking classes of kind of self-selection in terms of who winds up in what class. I think that's part of it. Um, the other is that, you know, I think faculty really have a responsibility to, uh, to referee in protection of minority views. Uh, but I think that we also have to be clear, if we're saying viewpoint neutral, that ignores the fact that the social circumstances that we are looking at are not neutral. Going back to the Yale example with, uh, I think it was 2017 when the whole situation emerged, people thought that it was a restriction on their free speech for it to be suggested by the institution, maybe you don't wear blackface. And so if we're going to say that your experience of, as a black person, as a person of color, on a campus which has historically discriminated against people of your background, which until at that point still had the stained glass image of the slaves picking cotton on the campus, and with the entire kind of racial legacy of this institution to say, oh, well, if this person has blackface, you're just being too sensitive. Uh, and the other point of it is when we look at on the, just the plain practical part of it with retention, and I know this because I like, um, am on small campuses, large campuses, public campuses, private campuses, over the course of a year, they are all like, how do we retain students of color? 
And the conversations I have with the students of color are the exact opposite. They're like, I feel isolated, I am ridiculed, people think that I don't belong here, etc. And so if we're saying this, and the last thing that I'll say on this point is that the, the key example, I think, in this was Birth of a Nation, the film that came out in 1915, the, which reinvigorated the Ku Klux Klan and became the rallying point for the drive to subordinate black people, drive us back out of political contention, and to, uh, to reaffirm the commitment to segregation. So this film was enormously damaging. Had actual, the ritual of burning a cross was not in the Ku Klux Klan's canon. That came from the film. So the film had this tremendously deleter deleterious effect. The NAACP protested the screening of these films, and it split the organization because some people felt that it should have been protected on the grounds of free speech. Other people were saying, look at what is happening tangibly, what is happening as a result of this film. And so when we talk about these things in even-handed terms, what we do is ignore the actual history of these groups who are marginalized and make it that much easier for people who are interested, invested in further marginalizing them to seem like they're part of the mainstream. I disagree respectfully with a lot of the specific points that you've made, Jelani, uh, but I think it's really more important, including the description of Erica Christakis's email. Uh, but I think in our limited time, it's more important to address the really core central point that you've raised, which has been of greatest concern to me in my advocacy. Uh, because as I am a crusader for free speech, not because of my abstract devotion to the First Amendment or even to free speech, but because of my lifelong commitment to human rights, uh, including certainly the right of equal dignity and opportunity, as the daughter of somebody who actually performed slave labor in Nazi Germany. And you know that the Nazis had a slogan of Vernichtung durch Arbeit, forgive my horrible German accent, my father understandably never wanted me to study the language. But that means to annihilate through labor. So it was at least as express an attack on human dignity as um, other forms of enslavement. And my passionate commitment to defending open inquiry and dialogue, especially on issues of race, gender, other equal justice issues, is because I continue to be convinced that free speech is the most essential engine for fighting oppression, fighting enslavement, fighting tyranny, and for pursuing equality and liberation. And that censorship is the most potent tool for suppressing them. Can, can I respond really quickly to that? I'm glad you brought up Germany because we have a conception of this in the United States that holds that the only antidote to hate speech is more speech. But not it is the only one, but, but, but the primary. But it is not, other Western democracies see no contradiction between saying we don't want to publish Mein Kampf or in Canada and saying that we have particular things that we don't hold to be uh, of any social value, given the particular history that is associated with this language. The last I saw, Germany and Canada were still democracies in good standing, just something I'm not sure that we get to say about ourselves anymore. And I think beyond that, secondarily, is that we're not talking about free inquiry. That's not what, what the, the area of debate is. I'm, we're completely on the same page as it relates to that. 
What we're talking about is the kind of cynical manipulation of the language of free speech for ulterior ends. And the best example of that, and the, what, which the ACLU got wrong, quite frankly, was Charlottesville. When there were people in the community in Charlottesville saying, this is not a free speech rally. But the alt-right, Nazi, neo-Confederate figures knew how to weaponize the language of free speech to say, we have to be allowed to hold this rally. Everyone was saying, if you are holding a rally and you are bringing uh, bats, knives, shields, the objective is not to talk. And when we saw, predictably, Heather Hare killed and the incidents of violence that were there, it only it highlighted the extent to which people are not looking at what is actually happening here. Yeah, I, again, I respectfully with, uh, disagree with a lot of what you said, but uh, including I'm the, glad the you respectfully his, disagree. The, the, his, <laughs> you know, so we should go to your Yale class, David, right? Um, so, you know, including both the history and, and the current status of censorship of so-called hate speech in Germany and other countries. Uh, but let me start with that and segue to Charlottesville because there is a connection. Contrary to many people's misunderstanding, in the Weimar Republic, during which the Nazis rose to power, there were anti-hate speech laws that were very strictly enforced, and leading Nazis were repeatedly prosecuted and convicted, and these became propaganda platforms for them. They received attention they otherwise would not have received, and support they otherwise would not have received. The problem was in the actual violence. They got away with murder against Jews, against uh, other minority groups, including gay people. And that's why I said, Jelani, when you said uh, the most, the only response to, to hate speech or speech you disagree with is more speech, no. The re a really important instrument that we have here is prosecuting actual violence as well as meaningful threats of violence and intentional incitement of imminent violence. All of these are illegal. And the problem in Charlottesville was exactly the same. Look at the report that was done, a nonpartisan report commissioned by the city council after the tragic events there, which unanimously concluded that the problem was a failure of law enforcement at every level, a failure to uh, protect against assaults, a failure to enforce laws that should have prevented the carrying of weapons, a failure to enforce laws against threats and incitement of violence. And let me tell you, I have uh, the greatest respect for Heather Heyer, the law enforcement officers and others who were killed or injured. Um, let me quote somebody whose name is probably not a household word here. Uh, I wish it would be. Her name is Susan Bro. She is the mother of Heather Heyer. And a couple of years ago, she and I shared a platform like this, and I thought, my goodness, you know, it's one thing for me to defend free speech and, you know, the, the remedy of going after violence and threats uh, to Jelani, but it's another thing to do it to Susan Bro. And to my astonishment, uh, before I could even say anything, Susan Bro eloquently came to the defense of the free speech rights of the Unite the Right 
demonstrators and of her daughter and the counter demonstrators. And she eloquently explained that if those people have those ideas, I want to hear them. And the only effective response is through counter speech and counter protest. So when does speech become violence? Yeah, like you can't say I'm going to kill you. That, that, you can't say that. Jelani, if I understand your argument, you're saying birth of the nation led more or less directly to violence. It did. It's, that's really not in question. Okay. So, I mean, legally we can say, like with Brandenburg, there has to be an actual uh, kind of imminent violence. There has to be a direct connection between the speech and what happens after that. And what I'm saying is that we don't seem to look at all the incremental relationships that are implicit in that prior to it. And so, moreover, the ways in which people particularly anti-democratic forces, undermine democracies by using democratic principles. And that seems to be something that we have not grappled with. In the same way that if we were to talk about our relationship with the Second Amendment, clearly we understand that with the argument that people make about uh, if you're saying you have a right to have a musket, that's not the same thing as the right to have an AR-15. This is so distant from what the founders understood to be firearms as to be a whole other category of weapon in itself. We're at a point now, particularly as it relates to social media, where the old regime of us having conversations, of us having dialogue, of us having uh, kind of countering speech with more speech is confronted by the technological equivalent of the AR-15 where misinformation, we saw this in our election, misinformation can be disseminated at a rate that far exceeds our ability to correct it. That, those, that misinformation tends to follow predictable lines that we've seen along lines of race, gender, not surprisingly, groups that have been traditionally excluded or discriminated against in the United States. And I find it difficult to understand why that's so difficult to understand, if I can say. <laughs> Another respectful disagreement again. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am astounded by the amount of respect that you have. <laughs> and, and I want to say I have equal measure. <laughs> I've lost respect for both of you. <laughs> But there it is. You know, because the reason is, it's very clear to me that we share the same passionate convictions and commitments to uh, equality and justice and liberty for all, right? Uh, and, the, and the debates are about what is the most effective or the least ineffective, I'll settle for that, uh, method of, of, of uh, pursuing those. And here it is true and I think appropriate that in modern history, the Supreme Court in a very important ACLU case to which Jelani uh, referred, um, very strictly circumscribed government's power to say the fact that speech might lead to violence or lawlessness is not enough to justify censoring it. In the past, the Supreme Court used to use this so-called bad tendency test, which is essentially what's used in other countries. The fact that speech might potentially at some point indirectly contribute to some illegal or violent conduct is enough to censor it, and it was under that loose, discretionary, subjective standard that led to the predictable, disproportionate censorship of civil rights demonstrators, of 
advocates for women's rights, of anti-war protesters, of, of socialists, of communist pacifists, you name it, anybody who challenged the status quo. Why did Martin Luther King write his historic letter from a Birmingham jail? Because his speech was seen as being potentially dangerous and subversive. So now it is true that speech that doesn't satisfy the current strict test, which is often called the emergency standard, speech that directly contributes to or threatens specific serious harm can be censored. It's recognized that speech that does not rise to that level may still do a great deal of harm. But the conclusion is that giving government more latitude and more discretion to punish speech that doesn't satisfy that standard is even more harmful. And countries around the world, Jelani, human rights activists in Germany and other countries that you cited oppose the hate speech laws, the disinformation laws in their country. Why? Because they see that those laws are disproportionately enforced against those who are challenging the status quo, those who lack power, either racial or other demographic minorities or political dissenters. I want, I want to leap out of the legal, because I think your first point, I think, was a true point, that there, our problem is more about culture than about laws and, and about shifting norms of what you feel safe you can say. And so I mentioned I teach at Yale. Yale has a history of... Uh, and so I, and Yale has a community. We have a culture, we have a set of standards we allegedly stand for. And I would hope if I showed birth of a nation in a classroom in a neutral or celebratory way, I'd hope they can me. Uh, I, and so I think that, I don't know if you agree, I think that is outside the norm of what a healthy community allows. The context is really, really important. I think if it were shown to illustrate precisely the historic role that it played, as Jelani was referring to, that it would be educationally appropriate uh, for students to understand in a visceral and uh, shocking way the power of the Ku Klux Klan and, and, and the... Uh, hey, Jelani, do you have a view on where, like how in a non-legal way, how an organization, a newspaper, or a college can throw no. the lines? So I think it's important, like context here is crucial. I've shown Birth of a Nation in my class, yeah. um, and it is you know, specifically along the lines of what this film did. You know, People I know who are film scholars show it for its technical prowess, for all, all sorts of reasons. I don't think that there's any way that you look at material and make it automatic kind of judgment about whether it's useful, whether it's valuable, et cetera. I do think, however, that there has been a general tendency that disturbs me greatly, because when I teach Birth of a Nation, there is, if you are uncomfortable with this, I understand. If you, don't, if you feel like you want to leave the room, I understand. I show images of lynchings in my classroom. I've taught African-American history for 20 years. Um, we've gone through all this, and you have to understand the level of trauma that may be imposed upon people. But now, it's almost as if the idea of saying that these things are traumatic or objectionable or problematic to people in and of itself is responded to with, oh, now you're, uh, these people are too sensitive uh, or people have uh, gotten to be the point where you can't say anything. Maybe sometimes things don't need to be said. Maybe, maybe there's that. Like, there are lots of things that I could say right now that I won't say. You know, as we all are. I mean, everything, we, we go around every, 
I, you don't have to say you're respecting you, me, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think of my haircut? It's great. <laughs> you know? I mean, there are all these things, but I'm saying that the idea that people are self-censoring in and of itself doesn't say to me that this is some sort of tyrannical or hegemonic regime uh, that people are being, maybe that's a good thing, maybe yeah, it's a social I, good. I sense a respectful disagreement coming. Mm -hmm. Well, no, the, I mean, I've made this point before, and I, I think we're both making the same point, that context is really important, including the specific details of self-censorship. If I refrain from, as I do all the time in teaching, right, that is our professional responsibility. Uh, first of all, we only teach about the topic, um, materials that are germane. Secondly, we want to be effective communicators. And I think in all contexts, we choose our words, whether we're in a court of law, whether we're speaking to this audience, whether we're speaking to our students. That is not, that's an exercise of free speech, right? Choosing what not to say and how to say it. Uh, but the real concern are the constant reports of people not daring to raise questions, not daring to challenge what other students say, not daring to challenge what their professor says. Um, and especially in when we're talking about you know, public uh, processes, people not daring to disagree about important issues of public policy, that's dangerous to democracy. I'll, I'll I'll highlight, I will highlight that you and I are disagreeing yes, over the entire yes, course of this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and it's no, I'm just saying, I'm just right, I'm just saying. Like, you know, yeah, that's still why hope. I said David should teach other yeah. <laughs> yeah. to his class. So, Jelani, I want to turn to journalism. You mentioned mm -hmm. the Washington Post case of one journalist retweeted a joke many people found tasteless and offensive, and he was called out by a colleague of his sure. who ended up getting fired. Right. Did she do the right thing in calling him out? Yes. And I think that she did what standards should have done. I think that any enterprise, I don't think that, first off, we, we traditionally teach, treat speech in the workplace differently than we treat speech in other places, in other kind of environments. Uh, and the argument could be made whether or not Dave Weigel was operating in his workplace. That line is very hazy. We haven't figured out what this is. The New Yorker's uh, social media policy was don't do anything stupid, which is what I think David Rimnick emailed us. Um, and, but I think that everyone is still figuring this out and what the lines, precise lines of that are. But I don't think there's that much controversy for an organization saying, we don't want you to make fun of mental illness. Like, knowing what a struggle it is for people who live with bipolar disorder, we don't think that it reflects well on our organization for you to, for one of our employees to ridicule people. Do you think the method of her call out was right? But can I um, give it another context, one that I'm, I'm more familiar with? It's absolutely true that workplace standards are very different from, uh, for example, campus standards. And I want to give a, where, where free speech uh, is, has a special salience uh, because that is the whole purpose of the university is truth seeking. And as a law professor and as a lawyer, I feel it's especially important to educate and train future lawyers as advocates to grapple with ideas that they disagree with. Um, there's an incident going on right now at American University Law School, which is investigating 
meet students who are pro-choice, who are highly critical of the Supreme Court's recent decision in Dobbs overturning Roe versus Wade. And they were in a chat that was organized by the law school um, for their classmates in which they said insulting, but not, you know, um, not on the basis of identity, just insulting the ideas, criticizing the ideas of another classmate who was defending the Supreme Court decision and attacking Roe versus Wade. And he reported them for committing sexual and racial, not racial, religious and um, ideological harassment against him. He said because of his gender, his religion, and his political beliefs. And the law school has been investigating this uh, for about a week now, or as long as, uh, how many, however many days ago the decision was decided. And that kind of, you know, bringing the force to bear of the academic institution threatening these students. The investigation itself has enough of a chilling effect. The fact that they are subject to punishment for criticizing an idea, to me, this is, you know, this goes beyond the appropriate kind of um, criticism and to an unwarranted chilling effect in a sector where that is counter to education, counter to our whole system of advocacy. Sure, but let, let me, what we're talking about university campuses, let's kind of look at the full spectrum of university campuses. I would like to ask when's the last time we've seen a phrenology lecture at a major psychology department? Not recently. Yeah, of course. When was the last time we heard an alchemist yeah. uh, in a physics department? But that's completely appropriate. Or when was the last time we heard a Malthusian in an economics department? Yeah. Uh, no, reason, I, I haven't reason, heard anybody reason, object The reason we to that. haven't heard those things is that universities use their discernment and judgment and have determined in those disciplines that yeah. those ideas hold no validity. And so I, therefore, yeah. therefore, there's no place for them there. I agree. And do you scholarly I academic hope you journals? Don't see that no, as no, a, I'm saying scholarly and I'm not talking yeah. about American. I'm talking yeah. about the, the broader institutional point that you raised. Yeah. Scholarly journals and outlets make content-based decisions. Make content-based decisions all the time. Decisions all the time. Their you do not have a right to be published in the and, Journal of American. And history. I agree. And I and I'm yet, saying I don't have a yet, right to teach certain when things. When people have equally ridiculous ideas. If they want to be brought to campus to speak, somehow it is violating the tradition of a university if we want to have this person, particularly what I find is like the tolerance of these ideas or the proponents defending the presence, the need to have open debate, the ideas that have been discredited a century ago. Jelani, we still I think you're- Let me, last yeah, thing I'm going to say yeah. about this, <laughs> the last thing I'm going to say, respectfully, hold respectfully, that. is that we find somehow the university has uh, violated its, the spirit of its, of its purpose, of its rationale for existence, if we don't have those ideas present in all places. Meanwhile, we've been, even just on the basis of, of what, we, what we teach and what we don't teach, we've been making those kind of judgments all along. I think One minute and then I, I want think, to go to the Okay, I think you're caricaturing um, the position of free speech defenders here. Uh, I'll speak for myself, but I know I speak for-, for I'm a free speech defender. Yeah. I'm just questioning <laughs> no, what, no, what, okay, so, what we categorize- Okay, so you with. and I are free speech defenders, and we agree that it is completely appropriate, indeed incumbent upon universities, to make content-based decisions all the time about uh, allocating these 
limited special forums, such as giving a commencement address, such as giving a speech. I mean, nobody has a right to speak on campus as an outside speaker any more than we have a right to be invited here. Universities do appropriately use criteria. I was told I had a right criteria. to be invited. <laughs> I was under that impression. But. If, if, if a university decides in its wisdom that for pedagogical purposes, as some of them apparently do, that they are going to empower, let's say, every department or every student organization to invite speakers, you know, that's their decision. And once they make that decision, then in fairness, they have to yield the, uh, the determination to the students. Now, you and I, or the other inviters, you and I may say, well, that's not the most rational allocation of scarce educational resources. That said, a lot of the protests have been against very serious people. You give extreme examples. I'm thinking people who have held top positions in the United States government, who have enforced policies that are still the law of the land. I may strongly disagree with those policies, as do the students, and therefore, I think it's especially important for the speaker to come to be subject to very critical questioning, to be subject to debate with a counter speaker. Uh, and so I think let's not um, distort uh, or over caricature the problem here. The problem that is serious is when somebody who has a serious public policy perspective, it may be very controversial, is not allowed to speak on campus because students disagree with that perspective. Okay, let's, let's go to the floor. Let's, let's uh, right here in the middle of this. I don't know if we have a microphone. We do have microphone runners. Yeah. <laughs> um, just question expanding on the question you asked earlier about like when does speech become violence? And it sounds like influence is, is now a big portion and it's become a big gray area, right, of course, with social media. So do you think the current definition of violence and the way we prosecute speech becoming violence is reflective of our social media impact and the, the, the place that cyberbullying is now playing on the, the younger generation? Let me preemptively agree with Nadine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, that, I think that like a personal peeve of mine, this is probably like my history as an English major, like rising up is that everything has been called violence. And when everything becomes, is called violence, nothing is called violence. Now, it is true that there are things that are like we, psychological violence and you know, verbal abuse, and we understand those things, but I think that that has become something that, at least contextually, doesn't really help us clarify our conversations. I mean, I've had, um, student, I had a student describe a yoga uh, instructor who made a particular request as doing violence to people who weren't able to like do this pose. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right. You know, yeah. I, I, this is my resignation. This is the point at which I draw my line. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the namaste, peaceful incense guy, like the, I, I just can't. Okay. Um, I, let's go, right, let's go I, right here. Thank you. Um, so this conversation you're having on the stage to me is the perfect example of uh, the further, further democratizing democracy because uh, Jelani, as you said, you can't divest the, 
the reading of the Constitution from the historical context. And historically, freedom of speech was written and afforded to landowning, ergo rich white men. Mm -hmm. So this conversation you're having is, is fully democratic. Mm -hmm. um, my question then is, um, if, if free speech was afforded to rich white men who were also then uh, educated white men, mm -hmm. um, is it possible for us to have a conversation on the defense of free speech without talking about the further democratization of education, since we can then give people a foundation to be able to reject idiotic ideas? I'm gonna preemptively agree with Jelani, and thank you so much for, for, Respectfully. for, for raising a point that I have written about uh, repeatedly, and I was hoping for an opportunity to make it here, uh, which is, to me, freedom of speech and equal rights are mutually interdependent. As I said earlier, I don't think we can advance equal rights without free speech. Uh, but we also cannot have meaningful free speech unless it is equally robustly available to everybody, especially those who traditionally, historically, have had their voices muted or silenced. Um, in, back in the 1860s, Harper's Magazine had a great line when it said, the alphabet is an abolitionist. Uh, my friend and colleague Randy Kennedy, who's a law professor at Harvard, uh, said that the single greatest example of censorship in this country's history were the pre-Civil War laws that, of course, made it a crime to teach enslaved African Americans or even in some cases freed blacks to read. And Frederick Douglass conversely said, uh, slavery cannot tolerate free speech. Five years of its exercise would banish the auction block and break every chain in the South. We cannot have meaningful free speech until we have the education, until we have the technology, until we have the psychological and other resources that make everybody able to meaningfully exercise this right. Okay, let's I agree. <laughs> there's, there's limits on free speech, time limits. So um, my question was, how do you think power comes into play in this case? Does it make a difference if the person speaking is very powerful? Um, and I'm, just to give you some context, I'm Brazilian, and we have a pretty terrible president who routinely expresses his views on a number of issues, including his views on women, indigenous people, black people, in a way that is not necessarily um, directly asking for violence against these minorities to be perpetrated, but it does naturalize violence. And he is in a position of power, so a lot of people listen. And we are in a country where law enforcement doesn't necessarily work that well. So the ability to exercise violence against your fellow Brazilian is quite, um, well, easy to obtain. Um, so I do wonder, does it make a difference if the person saying these things is the most powerful person in the country? Jelani, do you want to No? <laughs> I cut you off, well, I feel uh, bad. Well, no, 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 I mean, I think, it, I think it does, but I don't, there are mechanisms, I think, that are not necessarily, first off, I don't know how you enforce censorship on the most powerful person in the country. Um, but I think that theoretically, there are mechanisms that are supposed to provide people a means of checking that behavior. But theoretically, again, 
the person says something that's outrageous and you can respond to them at the ballot box in any of these other kinds of ways. Uh, I suppose, but I don't know, I don't really have a like a well-formed answer about like how you respond to that. I'm still dealing with my kind of Trump trauma, so. <laughs> Let's go with one final question uh, just over there. A respectful question. Um, President Obama gave a speech in, at Stanford in, in April calling for uh, some additional forms of regulating the internet and social media. I happen to agree with him. He talked about a little bit of the rise of uh, instructive communication and, and other things that's being studied at MIT and other places. Can we just address social media and, and how they've gotten a free pass up till now? That, that was why I brought up social media, by the way, that speech that, uh, that Obama gave. Uh, MIT is involved in that, Harvard's involved in that, a small institution called Columbia Journalism School is also, <laughs> also involved in work around that. Um, but I think that if you go back and read that speech, what Obama was talking about, uh, and also something that uh, a kind of working committee at Columbia has been thinking about, are ways in which you can enforce mechanisms, socially constructed you know, mechanisms, not necessarily governmental, which will incentivize social media platforms for dealing with um, disinformation, is particularly like we saw in the course of the pandemic, you know, uh, in the course of our elections, things that are really dangerous, uh, which they currently have no incentive to handle at all. Uh, and I think that probably the best thing is to look at the speech that Obama gave because he gives some very practical and pragmatic ideas about how you might go about addressing that. Again, I respectfully disagree. I think that there, there, there is a serious problem, but I think the vaunted solution is even more dangerous. One person's disinformation is somebody else's cherished truth. And as we have seen throughout debates about the election, throughout debates about the pandemic, throughout debates about civil rights, where information about the struggle was treated as defamatory disinformation, the decisions are very subjective. And I'm very leery about entrusting that subjective discretion to the powerful tech titans just as much as I am leery of trusting those discretionary decisions to government. We have to empower our students, our children, ourselves uh, to recognize disinformation, to uh, media literacy, and I'm sure the Columbia Journalism School along with other institutions recognize that ultimately this is the only solution. Even the most totalitarian regime cannot filter out all on truth. We have to depend on ourselves to do that. Okay, well, we're out of time. I, um, I think there's too much consensus at Aspen, and you guys have solved that problem. So thank you to Jelani and me. Jelani Cobb has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2015 and is the newly appointed dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He's the recipient of the 2015 Sidney Hillman Award for Opinion and Analysis Writing and writes frequently about race, politics, history, and culture. Nadine Strassen is the John Marshall Harlan II Professor Emerita at New York Law School and an expert on constitutional law and civil liberties. She was president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008. She's the author of Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. 
David Brooks is a columnist at the New York Times and chair of Weave, the social fabric project at the Aspen Institute. He also writes for The Atlantic and teaches at Yale University. He's the author of several books, including The Road to Character. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.